0: Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all, and um, we have just entered into what I think is the greatest weather season of the year in Louisville, Kentucky, which is the uh, autumn, the fall. We get a taste of it, and it just gets better until it comes to a stop. Uh, but right now, I think we're uh, we're entering. The sweet, sweet time of Louisville weather, but it's also a sweet time in the church with uh, students coming back, and it's a wonderful Sunday morning for us to turn to God's Word, and we're going to turn to the third chapter of Colossians. So as we're continuing through Colossians, we arrive today at chapter 3. So let's begin with the word of prayer, and then we will dive right in. Our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that You would bless our study of Your Word our reading of Your Word, our hearing of Your Word, our consideration of Your Word. Father, this is Your Word. We entrust our study of Your Word to You and ask that it will be to Your glory and for our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You know, when you look at the letters of the Apostle Paul, I think a non-Christian looking at these letters would be most surprised by how personal they are. And The personal reference here is, of course, because of a relationship between Paul and the church. For one thing, you're talking about Paul the Apostle and his relationship with these apostolically planted and established churches. It's an ongoing relationship that is very clear, the, the warmth of the relationship the uh, intimacy of the relationship in terms of how many people Paul knows. It's interesting in church by church, he can often often reference people, call out people, give greetings to people, even sometimes a warning. Every time you look at a book like Colossians, it kind of strikes you that this is a combination of a letter that appears to be written out of sheer love for the church, and yet also out of concern because of some kind of pattern, some kind of of challenge. We were looking at the book of Titus before turning to the Colossian letter, and one of the most amazing things about it are the continuity. So again, we have Paul, first of all, as the the apostolic letter writer. We had uh, Titus receiving the letter, uh, most immediately addressed to the church in Crete, And in this case, we have the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the Colossians, very similar relationship, very similar concerns, that's what's interesting, very similar concerns. And in both cases, the concern has to do technically with circumcision, but that's really just technical. The overarching issue has to do with the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, and the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, we've seen this. We've noted it. It's been featured and explained and explicated in this pulpit many, many times simply because of the sheer number of texts in the New Testament that deal with the question. But I do think it makes us step back for a moment. And so this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to step back for a moment and just realize there's a sense in which One of the greatest miracles of the early Christian church is how quickly Gentiles were assimilated within the church. And so much so, of course, that in a relatively short amount of time, Gentile leadership comes very much to the fore. By the second and third generation in the Christian church, Gentile leadership is increasingly the rule. But in the beginning in the beginning, those who were the natural leaders of the church, those who had been the disciples of Jesus, and for the most part, those who had, were assigned as apostles of Christ, they were all Jewish. And, and this is where we need to remind ourselves that central to Judaism, more central than we can actually imagine, was the notion that there is one covenant people of God, one. That, that was so much Israel's identity that the identity survived repeated exile and captivity. It it survived confrontation with so many different paganisms and different world systems and so many trials. It survived through so many generations and indeed through so many centuries. The one covenant people of God, and, and that was Judaism. And remember, that's why the issue of circumcision comes up so much. It's not just the law is that it was one unitary reality of God's covenant people. God chose them. God loved them, gave them the law and the covenant sign, which was circumcision. I think it's difficult for us sometimes to look back at a church like the church at Colossae and go, you know, what, what, what is the problem here? How can this be such a big issue the predominant issue was not, was not the Gentiles who were being welcomed into the church. The problem was those who were coming with Jewish backgrounds. And, and the problem is not that they were Jewish, they were the blessing, they were the reminder. Remember that the, the image that Paul uses in the book of Romans is not that the Jews were grafted onto the Gentiles, but rather the Gentiles are grafted onto the promises of Israel. The shocking thing is that Israel was expecting no such grafting. Israel's expectation had no expectation of Gentiles being grafted onto the tree. They were never looking for a time when they would look to the Gentiles and speak of them as brother and sister. They were never looking for a time when the one people of God would include people who were not Jewish. And we don't say this in order to castigate those first-century Jewish believers. Indeed, we can kind of look and say, what would they have believed? Even many of the prophecies that spoke of the, the Messianic age spoke of, for instance, the nation streaming into Jerusalem. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean, it didn't imply in the Jewish mind that they were all going to become a part of one covenant people. As a matter of fact, the predominant Jewish expectation was that it would mean that there would be Gentiles who would share in some of the blessings that Messiah would bring. So, as we turn to a, a letter like Colossians, we just need to remember that there's just deep, profound shock and, frankly, confusion over how this is supposed to work and, how this is, what is it supposed to mean? So when we were together last, looking at Colossians chapter 2, a text that uh, is pretty familiar to us, and one we can almost say, well, we certainly understand this. It, it, it's actually a lot more bracing and perhaps even shocking than you expect. And I'm just going to go back to those verses, the, the last two paragraphs of Colossians chapter 2, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We know, for example, that that kind of theological claim was one of the most troubling aspects to the party in the church sometimes referred to as the Judaizers because if indeed there's one covenant people of God and and if there's a chosen people and if indeed it includes both Jews and gentiles and if that if that one covenant people does exist th- th- it must mean that Gentiles are learning how to be Jews. I mean, that, that would make sense, at least make more sense. If there's going to be one, one redeemed people and Jews and Gentiles are going to be in it, then it would, be, it would be the responsibility of the Gentiles to learn how to be good Jews. But that's exactly what Paul says is not the case. And that does humanize it a bit, though, doesn't it? I mean, that, that, that does help us, understanding that, does help us to understand why the Judaizers, especially those who were perhaps just even thinking, why can't you just do a festival? Why, 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 why can't you just keep the Sabbath? Why couldn't you just do this? It, it's very easy for us to look back on the Jewish believers and say they were just flat wrong believing that this Jewish identity was to continue even Jewish practices and all the rest I think what we need to see with sympathy is it wasn't at all clear to them that that's what it meant wasn't at all clear to them that to be a Christian was to transcend even the Jewish Gentile divide. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died, and this is why we need to begin here before just looking at verse 1 of chapter 3, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why The if with Christ you died is another Pauline rhetorical device of saying you could take out the if. Paul never uses an if in this sense if it's not actually true. So he's in effect saying, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? You know, it's easy there, by the way, to look at that and say, well, that's clearly, exclusively explained by the kosher code, the Gentile background, the uh, Jewish background of the the early Christians, and especially those that came out of Judaism. Yeah, but it's clear in Colossae there's another problem, and it's, it's another thing for us to remember. So, you not only have the struggle between the Jewish converts to Christianity and the Gentile converts to Christianity it's not just the Jewish converts to Christianity that are bringing theological baggage, it's the Gentiles who are also bringing theological baggage. And a part of what's happening in Paul's letter, especially in chapters 1 and chapter 2, there is weird stuff going on about the worship of elements that like earth, air, fire, and water which, which is just sheer paganism You know, one of the anthropological principles in uh, the anthropological study of religion is that where you find religion, you are going to find some kind of cultic reference and emphasis on childbirth and crop rotation and weather. So, childbirth, crop rotation and uh, and weather. You're going to find a preoccupation with those things. In the ancient Greek uh, metaphysics, their understanding of the universe, even of the cosmology, these elements, earth, air, fire, water, these were, these were so important, so fundamental, that they themselves became the object of worship. So when Paul speaks of, you know, being done with that, those elemental things, he's not just talking about elementary He's actually about elemental. Stop it. So now Paul tells us, nevertheless, that the metaphor here, and this is what makes it so crucial in verse 30, is that Christians have died to the elemental spirits of the world. So that is done with them. You're dead to them. Now, here's a distinction. So notice the Apostle Paul says to the Jewish believers, You can continue your practices. You just can't universalize them. You can't make them a principle. You can't make them obligatory upon the Gentiles. You can continue to to keep a Sabbath. You can continue to keep the Jewish calendar. He says that explicitly. You just can't mandate it. You can't make it a part of the cultus of the church. But in contrast to that, to the Gentiles, his basic theological admonition is, stop it! You can't bring any of that into the church. You can bring Isaiah. You can bring Ezekiel. You can certainly bring Moses. You can bring the law. Now, again, that, that requires a Christian reading of these things, but you can bring all those into the church. We do. We do. We, we bring them all into this church. We've just been, you know, going through a lengthy sermon series in the Old Testament, we're bringing them all in. No apology. But what's not brought in are the is attentiveness to the elemental spirits of the world. And why it is because we died to them. That's the thing. In in, in Christ, we died to those things. That's what's crucial in verse twenty. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, we'll now look at verse one of chapter three. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This is one of those places where the chapter and verse divisions, which are, are helpful to us so that we can say, look at chapter 3, verse 1, not particularly helpful, interrupted a direct flow of thinking. The, the if then is exactly one argument, not, not two. It's, it's part one and part two of the same argument. If indeed, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that's just to set up in verse one of chapter three, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So this is actually a very easy logic, and it's going to be repeated in a different way in just just a few verses, just a few words later, so... We've died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the age. We've been raised with Christ for the things above. That's pretty easy to understand, right? You know, it's it's even the directionals work. Dead to things down, alive to things above. Now, here's another part of this background that every educated Roman citizen uh, based in the Greco-Roman world, this is what he would have recognized. And, and some of you may already be there, and some of you may not yet be there on a Sunday morning, but we got to go there, okay? In the Middle Ages, starting with the flowering of the Renaissance, the painter Raphael was uh, secured by the Vatican, hired by the Pope, to paint several frescoes in what became the Papal Palace. So Raphael, obviously one of the greatest and most famous of the, of the painters of the age, and, and what he was trying to claim in the grandeur of the paintings there in the, the new papal palace, what he was trying to invoke was the papacy as the magisterium of all truth and knowledge, okay? Okay. So, there's a giant fresco, massive, massive, uh, it's, it's also paint, uh, there on the walls, and, and by the way, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an artistic trick because there's architecture in the painting and it blends into the architecture of the room, so it could, it, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece, but nonetheless, it's got biblical characters and it has the prophets and it's got angels and it's got... Christ and apostles, but on the other side is a painting called The School of Athens. So the idea in having those two paintings is that the school of God, the school of the prophets, the school of the apostles, it finds its culmination here in the papal palace. But the claim is being made by Raphael in the school of Athens that also even the, all the knowledge of the ages and of the sages and of the philosophers of the past, all the, all the inheritance of classical antiquity is now under the stewardship of the Pope of Rome. Now, if you go to the papal palace and you look at this, uh, the, the, the game that's played by people is identify the philosopher. And uh, it, it, that's made a little tricky because Raphael painted his friend's into the painting so you're really not, you're you're just fooling yourself if you think you can identify most of these philosophers that's like his friend Jeff okay but there's no question who are the two figures in the center of the painting okay the two figures are Plato and Aristotle Plato's the older man, Aristotle, his student, the younger man. They're in the center of this room. And remember how the architecture blends into the ceiling? It's it's, it's as if the building was built for those two men standing there in the center. But their hands tell a story. In both figures, Aristotle and Plato, the figure is in the, the left hand carrying his most famous book, Aristotle, the Nicomachean Ethics. Plato and the forms. So what's going on there? What's going on is Plato's finger is pointed up. Aristotle is gesturing down. Now, those of you who know the history of philosophy know that that is the great debate between Plato and Aristotle. What's real, right? What's real? Plato said what's most real are the transcendent forms there somewhere in heaven, where there's a form chair, and that's the most real chair, and this is just a similitude representation of a chair. Aristotle, his great rival in the history of Greek philosophy, is pointing down, saying, "You know what real is? That's real." Plato, have a seat. Yeah, can't sit in your. Chair in the forms somewhere in the heavens that I can't sit in. I can sit in this chair. That's why if you talk about the history of science, it's Aristotle, Aristotelian science, as it's called, because it's like real stuff. You can just you can touch real stuff. You can Plato's the ideologue. Well, you know, it's very interesting that, 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 of course, that's very much in the background. But the whole thing is, those, those two motions, Plato pointing up and Aristotle pressing down, those are things we can recognize, right? I mean, you don't have to be in the school of Athens to figure out that's a fundamental question. The Apostle Paul will make reference to that very kind of debate and that very metaphysical conversation repeatedly But right here, notice that since we have died with Christ, then we have nothing to do with those elemental things. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, if we've been raised with Christ, and remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the the two most important doctrines that the Apostle Paul sent forth, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. The power of the gospel means even as we died with Him in His crucifixion, We have been raised with him in his resurrection. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now, we need to notice something. Like I said, Plato, Aristotle, very much a part of that conversation. Anyone trained in, in, you know, philosophy or even just basically anyone with any kind of formal education in the Greco-Roman world would have known that. The Romans, of course, continued the conversation. That's why in New Testament studies we refer to Greco-Roman philosophy. The Greeks started it. The Romans continued it. But the Apostle Paul here applies it As an apostle with consummate skill, you'll notice he's not really seeking to go back into the school of Athens. That's not really what he's doing. He is not talking metaphysics here. He's talking gospel and obedience to Christ. But there's still an up and a down. And and here he says, be done with the down. It doesn't mean that he's disparaging the material things. He's saying, look, you are made for heaven. You've been raised with Christ. Christ is not coming back to earth to dwell with us. He is coming back to claim His church and to take us where He is now, where we will reign with Him. One of the temptations that we see, and again, this this goes back to that anthropological perspective on religion, it's it's not without its insights because it's basically true. If, If you don't worship God, then you're going to come up with some kind of object of worship that will meet the challenges of childbirth and crop rotation and, you know, just the regularity of the world and the necessity of new life and reproduction. You'll also have to come up with some kind of law and some kind of lawgiver. And you're going to end up worshiping something elemental because the elemental things are Real. Paul says, we're done with the worship of the elemental things. We're setting our hearts on the things that are above. That's his whole point here. And yet he's really not talking metaphysic. There is a metaphysic because we have been raised with Christ. That's the metaphysic. It's the morality he turns to so quickly. Look at verse 5 put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And so he doesn't say what is sinful. Notice how consistent his argument is here. So again, he's been talking about the things above, the things beneath. He's been talking about the elemental things on earth, and now he's saying it's earthly. So earthly is not a compliment in this sense. In this sense, earthly is, is a form of theological condemnation. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That is a fundamentally Jewish assertion. That's exactly Leviticus. That's exactly the prophets. You say that what you're doing is, uh, you know, worshiping the elemental things of the, of the earth, creating your, your pagan idol in order to focus such worship. You just need to know that you turn that around, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, that is idolatry. That's exactly what focusing on the things below will lead to. It's pretty easy to understand. If, you, if you, you're going to worship something, And if you're going to worship the things below, then you're going to do what makes for the obsession with the things below. It's not a a mystery how all this comes about. I, I think I've told you guys probably several times about the Southern Baptist Convention having to shred every copy of its Bible encyclopedia that came out when I was a senior in high school. It became... Instantly, an object of attraction for all the teenage kids, boys in particular, when I was in high school. Because this pictorial encyclopedia published by the Southern Baptist Convention included all these pictures of pagan deities. And let me just tell you, what was offered in that Bible encyclopedia was a sex education that you were not going to get anywhere else. It was explicitly Mesopotamian pornography. If you're going to worship sex and reproduction, then you're going to worship sex and reproduction, and no one's going to have to wonder why your idol looks like that. You don't have to, ha- and there are no non-binary uh, idols. I mean, it's, uh, it's a very binary world. You can figure this out real quick. Paul is, is not embarrassed to even make reference to that, and that's what he's talking about here. When he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly to you, sensual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. By the way, it's like the Apostle Paul said, I've seen the pictures, I've seen the idols, I know exactly what's going on there. And even when you don't carve something out of wood or stone, your idolatry is just as apparent. Notice Paul's condemnation in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So, you know, this is where he sounds like Isaiah. He sounds like Elijah. The wrath of God is coming just as it came on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is just going to be a tiny little picture with Elijah of what comes when the wrath of God is poured out. All those elemental things absolutely destroyed. All those idols. All those grotesque misrepresentations. They're all going to be gone Barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Hold on just a minute. Hold on just a minute. The Apostle Paul here was talking about those who come from the Gentile background, right? Right? Are we we following this right? The elemental worship, the paganisms in the background, the, the, the idolatry? I want us to note that the Apostle Paul's pulled kind of a fast one here. So when he's talking about idolatry connected to these sins, and particularly sins of the flesh, it's not as if he speaks to the Gentile believers as you people. He's speaking of the entire church. The church, the redeemed people of God, the church is to be made up of those who have nothing to do with such things. Even though in them, quote, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You don't don't lie to one another. You put on the new self, put on, that's very important, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And that's hopefully what we're doing right now. We're experiencing what it means to be renewed in knowledge in the image of the Creator. That's the ministry by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God for the people of God. But then this verse, here, means the church, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You look at this and you go, well, my goodness, my goodness! So, why that verse here? Why? Why is that the obvious next place to go? Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You're hearing Galatians three twenty-eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. So here again in this apostolic letter, there's this blending of very practical problems. And the the apostle addressing very practical problems. Very very common and dangerous misperceptions of the gospel. He's countering those misperceptions of the gospel. And, and there are pastoral problems. He's, uh, he's seeking to address those pastoral problems. They're practical issues. You know, what place does Jewish sexual ethics have in the Christian church? And the New Testament Christians had quickly to come to the understanding by the apostolic exhortation that the, mor- the morality continues centered in the exclusivity of all sexual acts to the, to the context of marriage is the union of a man and a woman before God and before the people. In a world filled with sexual immorality, they're told to flee sexual immorality. But you'll notice it's not just that. It's, it's, it's a larger canvas, including all of the sins that he might name here in a short compass. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There's a dualism here again. It's a dual dualism. How do you like that? It's two for one this morning. You, you have the things below and the things above, and you got Paul even invoking Plato and Aristotle here, just saying, you know, that the, we, we are not worshiping the elements, the elemental things of the world. We are in Christ. And, and then we were crucified with Christ. In Him we have died to these things, and so also as He's raised, we are raised with Him in, in these things. But the other dualism comes not just above and below, it is now put on and put off. Verse 10, speaking of Christians, let's go back to verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, this... Putting off and putting on is really easy for us to understand. Uh, Riley and Katie, our daughter and son-in-law, came uh, for the fall festival. We are thrilled to have them here. Riley has flown back early this morning to be at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, where he has responsibilities this morning. Um, Benjamin and Henry are sitting back there with Mary and Katie, and Margaret is in the nursery, child care. Um, our house looks different when they're there. It just does. I mean, it, we, Mary and I, we pretty much know where everything is and where everything goes, and we're comfortable. There are two sets of cowboy boots under a chair in the great entry hall. There are other things. I mean, they put on a lot of stuff, and they put off a lot of stuff. <laughs> they are pretty constantly putting on and putting off. And uh, if, uh, if there's a surprise, like uh, pajamas with Paw Patrol or something like this, this is, if there's a, I mean, there's, there's a real happiness in putting on some things, And uh, when putting off some things means there's something better, the putting off can be quite, that can happen very fast. Things fly. But you know what? Those little boys back there, this image of putting on and putting off is something that at seven and five, they understand fully. This is a picture we can all understand. We're constantly putting on and we're constantly putting off. And just like we would put on a coat or a cloak, we're to put on the things that are Christ's. And we're just to take off, put off all the things that are other worlds. It's actually one of the easiest to understand metaphors in all of Scripture. You You don't need... Plato and Aristotle, you don't even need an understanding of ancient elemental worship. All all in this case you have to understand is we're to put on the virtues and put off the vices. We're to put on these things because we have died with Christ to these things and we've been raised with Christ. And so we're to put our focus on putting on the righteousness being renewed as a new self in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Oh, and you know what? If if we're taking off and putting on, and we're doing that together, I mean, all of us as Christians, even in this room, if that's what we're doing, if, if we are growing in faithfulness by learning how to take the right things off and put the right things on, if by the preaching of the Word of God we're constantly having the right things taken off and the right things put on, then increasingly it will be clear, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So we're, in effect, putting on Christ. In verse 12 Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility. We're to, we're, to, we're to put off, take off, put to death those things that are earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. We're to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa, whoa. Bomb, bomb, just went off. In the ancient Greek concern with the elements, what was the big issue. Harmony. What was the big danger? A lack of harmony. Horrifying earthquake took place in the last 48 hours in Morocco, uh, very near the ancient city of Marrakesh. 2,000 people, we believe, certainly killed. Uh, m- many more are likely to have died. It's a part of the world that's right on a fault line. It's, it, it's an ancient history but uh, there'll be people who'll be explaining this in terms of plate tectonics and stress on the earth and all the rest. In the ancient world, the explanation for this was the elements are out of harmony. It was the explanation for everything. A volcano erupts, the elements are out of harmony. A tumor in the body appears, the elements are out of harmony. uh, The crops don't grow. The elements are out of harmony. The goal is to do whatever you must do and placate whatever idols you must placate to get the elements back in harmony. You you notice how the Apostle Paul, just having having made reference to all this elemental worship and to, 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 to even that metaphysic, he comes right back to it and sanctifies it. And above all these put on love which binds everything together in what? Perfect harmony. So the unifying field principle of the world according to the biblical worldview is love. It is love that establishes the perfect harmony. Now in this case you know this love is not mere sentiment. This is love in a gospel sense. In the shortest Verse in the Bible reminds us God is love. And putting on love is that which restores the only thing that can restore perfect harmony, holding, binding everything together, perfect harmony. And then the closing exhortation where we close this morning and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to god and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him now when next time with you we're going to turn to that passage and so we're we're, we're not just going to read it and leave it. We're going to read it and then come back to it. Because oddly enough, there are two big things in this passage. One of them is, what is the Word of Christ? Because the the New Testament does not yet exist. So, what is the Word of Christ? And uh, in the context, it most surely is the the gospel. That's what it is. It it being largely orally transmitted and uh, made clear in the apostolic writings. So. We're directed to the Word of Christ, but we're directed to worship. And even what we're about to do is singing songs, hymns, and spirit, spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And what are we doing when we sing those songs together? We are admonishing one another in all wisdom, encouraging one another as we sing. So we're about to do that. I pray this morning that our consideration of this text has encouraged us so that even as we listen to the preaching of God's Word and even as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we will be simultaneously taking off and putting on all the right things. Having died with Christ to the things elemental and risen with Christ, we set our minds on the things that are above. May it be so. Let's pray. Father. We pray that just because, indeed, especially because we have turned to this text of your word today, you will in our hearts do hear what you command to be done in us, we pray. Even in this hour, we pray. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.